I suspect that there are lots of images that come to our mind when we think about what that day will look like when Christ comes and ushers in his kingdom in all of its fullness. We probably have a variety of thoughts and ideas and perspectives about that. And Isaiah gives us another perspective. In the second chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, he speaks about the last days, or as some of the translations have it, that day. That day when God will usher in all of his kingdom and all of its fullness, and everything will be put right. It's an amazing picture. It's one of my favorite pictures, visions in in all of scripture about what God is going to do for this broken, hurting world. We get an image of, even though the prophecy is for Judah and Jerusalem, for God's people, it's an image for the whole world. He says this mountain will rise, this mountain that represents the presence, the glory of God will rise And not just Judah and Jerusalem will come to it, but all the nations of the world will stream to it. They will all come. I have this vision in my mind. close my eyes and I see this mountain and I just teeming masses of people making their way toward it. Excited, overjoyed, thrilled that that they have finally understood what they haven't really understood before. At a glorious time. And as these people come, they will worship God. They will learn who God is. They will understand the nature and the character of God. We try, we work hard at it, we get we we understand things, but we, we can't quite understand fully the nature of God. On that day they will begin to learn, we'll learn more and more of who God is. But it isn't just about their relationship to God. It is also a day in which God will work, will heal, and reconcile human relationships. I think sometimes we view the gospel as having only to do with our relationship with God. But scriptures tell us again and again and again that it is as well about our relationship with each other. And in this vision of, the, of that day, Isaiah says that these nations who have been at war with each other will find peace. God will mediate peace between them. They will be reconciled. And they will put down their weapons of war. Actually, they don't just put down their weapons of war. They are so committed to peace. It is so much a part of what the world will be for them that they actually take these weapons of war and they turn them into tools to plant and to harvest and to create and to flourish. Weapons that have been used to tear down, to injure, to kill, to destroy, now become tools to feed and to nourish. I think sometimes we, we think about these kinds of things and, and I think that's important because often you, know, you have something in your house that you think, well, will we ever use that again? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. 
Well, we might, just in case. So we'll put it back here in, this, in the corner of the basement, just in case, right? Now, I know you probably don't have those places in your house, but we have those places in our house. Where, you know, and, and we do that. We look at it and we think, ah, will we use it? Will we not? There's something in the back of our minds that says, well, we might, so we better hang on to it. Because you know, the minute you get rid of it, there you need it, right? That's the way it always works. So we put it back in that corner of the basement just in case. This is not one of those just-in-case kinds of moments. They aren't putting their weapons down and putting them back in the corner of the basement saying, you know, we might need that, so just in case, let's hang on to it. Now they're letting it go. Turning it in to something completely different from negative to positive. But not only that, it's an emotional, it's a psychological change It's not just about the weapon that's in their hand. It's about how they think about other people. It's one thing to say, okay, we're going to put aside our weapons. We're even going to, we're even going to turn our weapons into, into tools for flourishing. It's a whole nother thing to say, we're not even going to contemplate war anymore. We're not going to strategize about it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to consider it even an option. It is now no longer a part of our lives. It's hard for us to imagine that mindset because we live in a world that is continually at war. Isaiah gives us this glimpse of what it will be like and it it is a glorious picture. It's an amazing picture of healing and reconciliation and peace. I often think about this picture when I read stories of wars and conflicts in the world and, and the way that we, we fight with one another. And this image comes to my mind and I think, wow, what a day that's going to be when we put all that aside. We're no longer grasping for power. We're no longer manipulating other people, whether you're talking about internationally or within the nation or people in general. We just want peace. And when I read this passage, I don't think he's only talking about international relations. As important as that is and as as significant as that is, I think he's talking about conflict in general. It's pretty easy for me to say, I wish those nations would stop fighting with each other. It's a whole other thing for me to say, I need to stop fighting with that person. Here's the call of the gospel as I read this passage. The call of the gospel is that when we think about that day that will come, we often see it as a means of escape. We're going to escape from this broken world. We're going to escape from the pain and the heartache and the conflict and the war. And and we're going to escape out of it. And then God's going to bring his judgment to bear on it. But that's not the picture that Isaiah paints for us. What he says is that God is going to come. His servant is going to return reappear, and he is going to bring peace to the earth. 
And instead of thinking of our role in this as some people, as people who escape from the pain, this message, this vision says to us, we actually have a role in beginning the process of bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. We could sit back and say, well, God's going to do this and we don't really have anything to say about it if it weren't for verse 5. You know, you read along in Scripture and you think, wow, this is really good. Yes, yes, yes. And then you come to verse and go, man, I wish that really wasn't there. And verse 5 is one of those. And it's interesting to me that a lot of the Bibles I looked at, they have a section. The section ends at verse 4 and verse 5 begins a new section. But I think verse 5 is the follow-up to verses 1 to 4. Because 1 to 4, here's this glorious picture. And then he looks at Judah and Jerusalem and says, now here's what I want you to do. You walk in the light of the Lord. And that's our calling. And the question that's been going around in my mind is, what does it mean to walk in the light of the Lord? And I think in this context, it means that we are as committed to the image that that Isaiah paints about the last day then as we are now. We want the kingdom of heaven that Isaiah paints then to start taking place now, in this day. And we, we hear the call of the gospel to be agents of bringing about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, as we just prayed a few moments ago. That we want to be agents of reconciliation, agents of peace. Now, it's going to be a little bit difficult for us to be agents of peace. Most of us won't have the opportunity to be peace agents and reconcilers among nations. If we get that opportunity, awesome. And I think we always ought to be looking for those opportunities to be a voice. But probably, more than likely, the place where the calling, this calling is going to be in our lives is reconciliation in our relationships. In our homes, places where we work, places we go, the people we interact with. That we become agents of reconciliation and peace that begins to create an atmosphere here on earth that Isaiah paints in heaven. I think that's our calling. Now, it's one thing to say, let's talk about the vision of heaven. That's pretty awesome. And yes, we want that to happen and we can't wait for that to happen. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to be a part of trying to make that happen now. I'm going to put down my weapons of war. Actually, more than that, I'm going to turn my weapons of war into weapons of peace and reconciliation. I'm going to to ask God to continue to help me to not train for war anymore. To stop thinking about how I need to protect myself and defend myself in these relationships. And to to make sure that I get the last word. To grab for power. Even to manipulate and use people to get what I want. It's, It's something we all wrestle with. 
the tricky thing about that is that we can we say, well, I want to commit myself to being that kind of reconciling person, reconciling influence and peacemaker. But that gets tricky when you realize we live in a world where other people are playing by different rules. We're putting down our weapons and most of the world isn't putting down their weapons. It suddenly reminds me of those old westerns where you have the, the two, two people with guns facing, pointed at each other and... They're at a stalemate. Nobody wants to shoot because they know they'll be shot. And so they finally get to the place. They say, all right, I'll put down my gun if you put down yours. The other guy says, I'll put down mine if you put down yours. And they do this, but nobody takes their hand off the trigger because they don't want to be the first one to let go of the gun because the other person might not keep their word. And it's a stalemate until somebody takes the first step. And whether we like it or not, the radical call of the gospel is that we take the first step. We don't sit back and wait for other people to come to the place of where they have, they have, they, we feel comfortable with how they, what they're doing that we then say, okay, now I'll work at this. God's people have the privilege and the responsibility to take the first step. To put down our weapons. The hard part about that, of course, is that makes us feel awfully vulnerable. And we don't like feeling vulnerable. I don't like feeling vulnerable. It's risk. We avoid risk. We run away from risk. We do everything we can to get away from risk. We don't want to be vulnerable, and yet the call of the gospel is to be willing to be vulnerable for the greater good. To be agents of of bringing God's purposes on earth. And we know that's what God wants us to do because that's what God does. The ultimate risk taker is God. From the very moment of creation, God, God takes risk after risk after risk. And he keeps risking with people and people keep rejecting him and he keeps taking risks with them and they keep rejecting him. And on and on until we come to Jesus. And now you would think, okay, now he has done it. He, this is the greatest revelation of God. And he is going to make sure we get it. He's going to make sure we see it. And he is going to come in power and might and majesty but he doesn't. Comes like a baby. Comes as a baby. There is nothing more helpless in this world than an infant. Absolutely nothing. Someone said to me coming out of the last service, they were holding a little baby and said, you're so right about that because this, the baby's probably two or three months old. He said, she said, still can't do anything. You know? Can't. An infant can't feed itself, can't protect itself. It can't do anything. can't even roll over. And this is God in human flesh. This is the strategy that God uses to come into the world to show us what the kingdom looks like and what his people look like. 
And so John, in his prophecy, says, talks about the light that's come into the world. He's speaking of Jesus. And, and that's awesome, and we love that. What's so amazing is that when you get that Matthew follows that up in, in his gospel and says, not only Jesus is the light of the world, but Jesus looks at his disciples, at people like you and me, and says, you're the light of the world. And you want to say, really? Us? Yes, you are my witnesses. You are my representatives. When people think about me, they're going to look at you and see me in you. Wow. I want to say, have you looked at us lately? Really? Yeah. I think it comes down to keeping our eyes focused on the mountain. That's one of the things about this image. Everything's about the mountain. People running to the mountain. It's from the mountain that mediation comes. It's it's because of the mountain that all these people put down their weapons and don't study war anymore. It's all about the mountain. And that's the problem with us is that we we lose our focus on the mountain. The the verses following verse 5, 6 through most of the rest of the chapter and woven all throughout Isaiah's prophecy and most of the scripture, God says, you know, you keep running back to these... Places. You keep running back to these other gods. I think when he, when he talks even in here about the mountain rising up above the hills, I think there is a subtle message in that because in Israel, where did you go to worship false gods? You went to the hills. And Isaiah is saying this mountain is so much bigger than that. But it's focusing on the, on the mountain. I will never forget... I was thinking about this earlier. 39 years ago, when we, you know, I grew up in southern Indiana, and a mountain was sort of like a, that ridge that if you got on your tiptoes, you could look over it. And then we moved to Oregon, and I still remember driving down Interstate 86 in the Columbia River Gorge and coming around that turn, and right in front of me was Mount Hood. Wow. Well, that's a mountain. And just... I almost had to stop driving because I was so awestruck by this. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up and my pulse began to race. And and I made that trip dozens of times. And every single time I had the exact same reaction. It's just just awesome. It's beyond words. Just that, that sense of the majesty and the power of this mountain. And I think if we could grasp that about who God is, it would change how we live. But so often our focus is off of the mountain. It's on all the other stuff. It's on all the things. And they're not unimportant, but they only have, they're only in the right place when our focus is on the mountain. And of course, when you focus on the mountain, you're drawn to it, just like people are. And, and you want to climb that mountain. And I think God invites us to do that. But we all know it's risky to climb mountains. You can get hurt climbing mountains. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. I don't like that fourth or fifth rung of a ladder. I don't like standing on the edge of the balcony up there, to be honest with you. It makes my knees weak. So I'm not a mountain climber. Why? Because I'm afraid. And what I find is that so often we, we think the Christian life is about how to be safe. 
What's the safest route to take? What's the safest thing we can do? That we, we judge holiness based on not doing something wrong. Not making a mistake. But when you read the Gospels, particularly a lot of Jesus' parables, I think this is why we have such, hard, such a hard time with them, is that he flip-flops that completely. And he says to the people who played it safe, get away from me. You missed it. And the people who take risks with him, he says, that's exactly what I wanted. And I think it's because the reason we play it safe is because we don't really trust God. We don't really believe that God is who he says he is. And so we hedge our bets. And we say it's about being safe. And we think being a Christian is about following the rules. It's about being moral. It's about playing it safe. When we read the scriptures, we find it's about being open to God. It's about being open to Christ, so much so that if he says, leap, we leap. If he says, run, we run. If he says, stop, we stop. To walk in the light of the Lord is to live with such an openness to God because we're so focused on the mountain that we want what he wants. And we're willing to be vulnerable and we're willing to risk in order to make that happen. But you know, mountain climbing is not something you do by yourself. We need each other. Ever so often through my life, I've gotten, a, a, I don't know, I guess a, a shot of adrenaline and courage. And I've climbed up someplace that I thought, I can do this. And I talk myself into it and I get into a spot and then I can't get down. I talked to Cindy or my sister about an event at Sacre Coeur in Paris. And uh, there are still, I'm sure, French people laughing about that event that they watched take place. I'd still be at those places. I'd still be hung out in the, on a roof or on a landing if it weren't for other people. For people who encouraged me, took my hand, helped me through it, got me down. You see, this, this being the, the people of God, bearing the image of Christ, bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, isn't something we do by ourselves. He doesn't say, he doesn't address this prophecy to a person. He addressed this prophecy to God's people. It is something we do together. When Paul writes to the Corinthians about being reconcilers, he's writing to the church. There's no way any of us are going to be able to be the kind of witnesses, the kind of light that God is calling us to be the agents of, of reconciliation in this world without each other. To pick each other up, to encourage each other, to help each other, to, to walk with each other. It's impossible without each other. And that too is the radical nature of the gospel. It's always, a, it's always plural activity. It's the church. I don't think anybody in this world will ever truly believe 
that the image Isaiah paints is the truth. Unless they see a glimpse of that truth in the people who say they believe it. And that's our calling. That's walking in the light. Focused on the mountain. Living in a spirit of openness to God. And when we do, it is amazing. It's amazing how God puts us into places where we have the opportunity and the privilege to put down our weapon first and to be agents of peace and healing and reconciliation. So this morning, as you think about your life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your perspectives, your relationships. Probably the place to start is to ask ourselves, is there an adversarial relationship in my life that I need to take a first step? There's no guarantee how people will respond to that. Absolutely no guarantee. But that's not our responsibility. We're just called to take the first step. Put down our weapons. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a, it's a people group that rubs you the wrong way, that, that you, you've had bad experiences with. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a nation that you really wrestle with. Are we so focused on the mountain? Walking in the light. We're open enough to God to, to be agents of reconciliation and healing. And to actually, actually help bring more and more every day the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. During this Advent season, we wait for that day... The, near the end of December when we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But it's also a time to wait, to prepare for that day when Jesus comes again and to help other people be ready and waiting and living and anticipating like we are. Father, you know the struggle in our hearts. We want to be people who walk in the light. We want to be people who, who actually together help people see that the mountain is real. It's true in Christ. So give us grace to be willing to, to take the first step. Pray this through Jesus. Amen.